mm-hmm. stayed in this um, real small village in the Amazon. And I remember just being so incredibly impressed by the kids there. I just felt them so mature and able. They were so confident in themselves. I remember seeing a kid, he was probably four or five years old, and he already had a machete when they were out over clearing a part of the jungle one day. And he was already working with the others. He actually wasn't working as hard, and the machete wasn't quite as big or as sharp, but he was already partaking, and you could tell just how much more in control of himself he was, how much more sure of himself he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's because of the way that he's raised, where he is involved in everything that adults are doing. He's able to help, and he's actually important to their lives. Hey everyone, I'm Kyra, and I bet many of you are wondering what you just listened to. You might be intrigued, or perplexed, or some combination of the two. Either way, you're about to be even more confused because the topic of this podcast is homesteading. What is homesteading? We'll be exploring that question today, along with other big ideas such as how can we live sustainably in an urban environment? What lessons about the environment can we learn from other cultures? How do we instill these values in our children and our communities? Today I'll be chatting with various people whose lives are dedicated to sustainability. So let's jump into it and stick around because that story will make sense in the end. So to explain the concept of homesteading a bit, let's go back to Dan Bensonoff, the speaker you just heard at the beginning of the show. Dan is from Roslindale, Massachusetts, and lives with his wife, son, and another couple in a cooperative household. Their home life revolves around their kitchen where they grind flour, ferment everything, make meads and country wines, process forage goods, and feed their many visitors out of their larder. I had the chance to chat with Dan on the phone the other day, and I think his definition of homesteading makes a lot of sense. So essentially, homesteading is quote-unquote living off the land, but historically it referred to the granting of federal land, generally at little or no cost, to individual families for farming. It's most closely associated with the opening up of the American West, especially in the last decades of the 19th century, post-Civil War, and the early decades of the 20th. So what does the modern homesteader look like? There isn't a straightforward answer, but for urban homesteaders, neighbors are a huge asset. I had the pleasure of also speaking with Kristen Brennan, an urban homesteader, farmer, beekeeper, and home birth midwife, living with her family in Springfield, Massachusetts. She has 14 years of experience with growing in small spaces, foraging through the urban wilds, keeping animals and bees, living nearly off the grid with no fridge or car, and running a small CSA. By the way, a CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and it essentially means that you're purchasing a share of vegetables from a regional farmer. 
one of the features kind of just philosophically that we've always felt strongly about is that we wanted to connect with other people in very like practical ways in which our lives like in you know the old school way or like the ways in which humans used to exist is with true dependence on one another on their interdependence Mm -hmm. and in our modern world we actually don't really need to interact with our neighbors everything can be provided for us by like the supermarkets or the stores that are near us and that we don't actually have to meet our neighbors and those who do end up meeting their neighbors you know might do it in a very superficial sense whereas we have tried we're trying to rekindle some of those old, old ways of like being really somewhat or at least in one way like dependent on someone else and and that is that is really to um, create like deeper relationship, not not to depend <laughs> on others to provide for us, but really to say like, listen, we've got these vegetables, and you have, you know, you're a fisherman, and you, um, you know, exchange fish for our vegetables. Or um, so so some of the examples of that is like, you know, some of our neighbors are. Um, seamstresses and we've done some bartering of our products which are vegetables and and um, honey and some meat <laughs> products or eggs with um, some clothing or repair on certain clothing or we have um, neighbors who are have protein sources for us particularly um, we have two very close neighbors who are fishermen and go to various lakes in the region but also one that goes to the ocean and so he gets vegetables from us and brings home fish when he goes fishing also our neighborhood store which is just you know a classic urban convenience store mm-hmm. um, he actually barters we grow tomatoes and we bring our tomatoes and he just gives us some essentials like toilet paper or the types of things that we couldn't grow on our farm we have also lots of like mentors like a beekeeping mentor that i have and then we've had some other folks within the neighborhood that we've um been able to exchange their skills like they're helping us with certain development of our own skills and then we would try to barter with them in ways of either time on their own properties or Mm -hmm. helping them with this or that or directly giving them vegetables In the homesteading community, there seems to be this common theme of going back to this innate natural way that humans have always lived. Dan brought this up as well. I guess I feel like part of my work in in this world is like trying to help like recreate a village. Humans evolved living in small communities for you know roughly a million years. Yeah. That's that's how we live. And I still think that that is in our DNA in many ways. and I think, you know, a lot of people are incredibly lonely because we're sort of like all sequestered in our own little lives, in our like boxes to keep us in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yes, we have all sorts of ways to communicate with each other digitally and on the phone. And, and that's, that's all good and fine. But um, I think people really do crave like human connection with the people close to them. That's, that's sort of like what I'm trying to do on some level is bring some kind of a This got me thinking about the ways in which children are raised nowadays and how this differs so much for homesteaders. How can we raise the next generation to be more mindful in their actions and to live purposeful lives in the way that Dan describes? I found one answer to this in a conversation with Kasaya Bascom and Derek Jameson, who are co-founders of the Offbeat Compost Company, a food scrap collection and composting service in the Merrimack Valley region. 
It's cool because in a lot of the schools, I think there's a composting curriculum now. So kids go home and they say, like, guess what we're learning about? And then they see a program like ours and the child is excited. And so if the child is engaged with it, then it's more likely that the parents want to engage with it. So that's a really good way to work with it, too. With households, it's harder. We're still trying to come up with ways to like tap into people's value systems and say there's more to it than even just climate change. Like you're going to be mm-hmm. a part of this like community movement and you get to know other people who are doing the same thing. Kristen expressed similar sentiments in the skills and values that she believes are most important in raising her children. In this past year, she took on, I was doing this midwifery stuff, and so I some several of the tasks that I would normally do around our homestead, she took on. By the way, she's talking about her daughter. And um, one of them was growing the seedlings for the farm. And when I think of things and projects that a 14-year-old would take on, just the level of complexity and hard work and attention, you know, it's just like this is, this is real, real learning. And this is, whether or not she becomes a farmer or not, this is like a level of education that I feel really proud of for her. You know, there's beautiful models of learning out there, you know, about Montessori or different yeah, yeah. Um, Waldorf, which have like great philosophical commitments, but I think the difference here is that she was actually growing the seedlings for our working farm. It's connected to a real, like, production thing. Like, it has content in a way that sometimes for young people, we set up these sort of um, fall situations so they can gain the skills to then interact the world later instead of Mm -hmm. saying, okay, so what are the real skills that, like, a young person can develop right now so that... You know, we have pictures of her when she's, like, one and a half or two, like, just shucking beans. Like, she's – so in 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 an educational setting, they would have kids with, like, all, you know, different color plastic toys, and you'd put all the blue ones in here and all the red ones in here and et cetera, and you'd be learning this wonderful technique of, like, distinction. And instead, she's separating, like, you know, pintos from black from, you know, white beans, and she's doing that same thing. But in the end, we're like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much, because now all the beans are organized, and we can Mm -hmm. put them away for the winter. So it just, like, has, like, a real usefulness. And obviously, when she's two, she didn't do that crazy amount. But then, little by little, they're, like, real companions on the farm, and they're going to go away from their childhood with that level of skill and practical, you know, engagement. And of course, we heard from Dan at the beginning of the show about his experience in the Amazon and how that affected his parenting beliefs. And this exposure to a culture with such different values reminded me of a similar experience Kisaya recounted about her time in the Peace Corps and how that led to what she does today. I was in Nicaragua and farmers there just know the land, they know how to grow, and it was a really community-based place. And so all of that really resonated with me. It's also interesting going to another country and the program that I was in did a really good job being like, this is a cultural exchange. Like there's, you are going to learn so much from the community you're in and they'll learn from you as well. And so I I think it just gave me a a perspective on service where I was like, you know what, like, yeah, this is like good. We're learning from each other, but really if I want to make a change, I want to do it in my own community. So I, I wanted to come or like in my own country like there's so many issues where we are like why am I traveling around the world when there's like stuff we need to address here and comes to terms of here so I think that kind of pushed me down this path as well. Of course as Derek describes there will always be skeptics and people who just don't understand 
there's always a money aspect. If yeah. people don't get some type of money or some type of benefit from composting, <laughs> then they just refuse to do it. I mean, we have a few customers who just compost and with us, and they don't even want the compost back. Like they give us their mm-hmm. food scraps, and they don't want compost back. Mm-hmm. That's one of the That's benefits that we have with um, off the compost, and they don't even want it back. They just I just feel great about doing this. Yeah. And so there's other people who's like, I have to pay you to give you my food. Yeah. <laughs> and then I can compost back. What is this? It sounds like a scam. And so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they really do say this a lot. Yeah. But ultimately, homesteading is about connecting with the land, almost in a spiritual way. I mean, to me, honestly, this, what this is all, it, it really is kind of like part of like my spiritual work, I guess I would say. Yeah. Um, Homesteading may seem like a lifestyle that is too extreme for any of us to comprehend. It's easy to dismiss as something we never would or could do. But Kristen's vision for the future seems like something we could all get behind. We call our farm, we just live on a street called Marlboro Street, and Mm -hmm. I don't really particularly like the name Marlboro Street, but we do call ourselves Marlboro Street Farm because our vision would be that every street in our in our small city would have a farm so it's like oh it's like linden street farm it's this street farm it's this yeah, street yeah. farm so that every you know every 10 houses or i don't mm-hmm. know every 15 houses depending on how long the street was would have its own small farm maybe every every house would have its own small garden which of course would be brilliant and maybe there have been time there have definitely been times in the history of different cultures in which that's been true that everyone you would never make it without having your own small like kitchen garden. Yeah. I think that has a lot of value, that vision. Thank you so much to NOFA, the Northeast Organic Farmers Association, my interviewees, Kasaya Bascom and Derek Jameson, Kristen Brennan, Dan Bensonal, and thank you to the following websites for the sounds that I used, freesound.org and leerosevere.bandcamp.com.